started this evening. Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. And before we begin, I'm going to ask the Lord to help us out again this evening. Father, we thank you again for another Tuesday evening. We could get together here and open up your word. And Lord, uh, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would ultimately be our teacher. We ask, Lord, that uh, in any way that, uh, Lord, that we would get in your way, that, Lord, you would uh, just oversee that and help me, Lord, not to be a hindrance to your word in any way tonight. Uh, Father, we want you to be honored and glorified. We want you to be magnified in our presence tonight. And, Lord, just help us, as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, to just uh, allow this book to stir us to worship to praise as they are doing in heaven uh, all the time, Lord, throughout this book. Uh, May this book um, that uplifts you, uh, Lord, be uplifted in our hearts, and may we have just a renewed appreciation for our salvation, and Lord, for all the blessings that we have through Jesus Christ, and we ask all this in in his name. Amen. Amen. Oh man, everybody was waiting to come in. All right. Revelation chapter 10. Here we go. We're going to get through four chapters tonight. Ready? (laughs) I told you, we're not fooling around now this second half. We're going through it. Well, really, honestly, in chapter 10, there's really not much to just dwell on and to chew on. I mean, you can chew on it as long as you want to, but a couple of things that I do want to point out. One. The only time in the book of Revelation where John is told not to write what he's being told and what he's seeing is in chapter 10, where he says in verse 4, where the angel says, seal up what the seven thunders spoke and do not write it down. That is the only time where John is told, don't write. Every other time it's like, you know, I want, I want my servants to know what's going on. I want the, So we don't know what the seven thunders have said. We don't know what that's all about. I guess we're going to find out one day, but that's part of chapter 10. And the other part is this whole concept about this other scroll. Uh, You'll notice there uh, in verse 8 that this voice is talking to John. He begins to speak to him. He says, I want you to take this scroll in your hand. And then he says, I actually want you to eat the scroll. Now, I don't think he physically ate the scroll. I think it was more like Jeremiah even says, you know, your words, I ate your words. And they, you know, it's it's more a way of saying I'm internalizing this truth when when we talk about eating the word of God. Just sort of like Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. But we don't literally eat Jesus. We understand what that means. It's a metaphor. And we are to take Christ in and he's to be our bread, our, our daily bread. So, but, but here's the important point I want to make from chapter 10, and that is what the angel says about this scroll that, that John is to internalize. He says, when you eat it, it's going to make your stomach bitter, but it's going to be sweet as honey in your mouth. So verse 10, John says, I took the little scroll from the angel's hand, I ate it, and it did. It tasted sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter, And then he was told by the angel, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So, again, not a lot of detail going on in chapter 10, except the fact that he was told not to talk about the seven thunders and what that all meant. But I do want to talk about this for a moment, because I think it's important, and it applies to our life, and that's why I want to talk about it. 
John is being reminded here by the angel about the bitter sweet nature of the truth of God, which is really what we see played out in the book of Revelation. It is sweet, and the revelation is sweet in some ways, especially to those who know Christ and who are going to have a home in heaven for eternity, and and there's so much sweetness about what God's truth says if you're on this side of it. But if you're on the other side of it, it's not sweet, it's bitter, you see. So when you go through the book of Revelation and you study it and you see all the blessings of those who know Christ and the future of, of those who know Christ, whatever, that, that's cool, that's, that's honey, that's, that's sweetness. But when you start thinking about the destiny of those who have rejected Christ, that's bitter. And that's why John, as he takes this in, is beginning to understand the bitter, sweet nature of God's truth. And we could say the same thing. When we read the Bible, when we study the Bible even as Christians, there are some passages and there are some parts of it that are bittersweet. Because we come to places like Revelation where we say, that's good for us, but boy, that's not good for those who've rejected Christ. And so there's sort of that bittersweet nature. Now, to illustrate this a little bit further and to support this concept, before we go into chapter 11, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul sort of talks about this as well. Maybe a little bit different slant to it, but it's basically the same thing, where he says, unto one we are life, unto the other we are death, as we walk through this life. You'll notice, I just want to begin in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. And who makes known through us the fragrance that consists of the knowledge of him in every place. So as we go through our lives, spreading the fragrance of Christ, notice what Paul says beginning in verse 15. So, we are a sweet aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the latter, though, we are an odor from death to death, but to the former, a fragrance from life to life. So, again, he's sort of contrasting the fact that as we walk through life, to those that are being saved and to those that are no, to know Christ, our life, in a sense, is a sweet fragrance. But to those that don't know Christ, it's sort of this bad odor. It, it's, it's not a good thing. Okay, So that's sort of that bitter sweetness that you see from Revelation chapter 10. And, of course, he goes on to say who is adequate for these things. For we are not like so many others, hucksters who peddle the word of God for profit, but we are speaking in Christ before God as persons of sincerity, as persons sent from God. So he's simply, again, talking about the fact that as we walk through this world, there's sort of a bitter sweetness uh, as we go through, because we are a savor of life to those who know Christ, but we are a savor of death to those who don't know Christ. Okay, And, and that's, that's what John is realizing here in John chapter 10. Uh, the bittersweet nature of the truth of God. It just depends on what side you're on, in a sense, of how it's going to fall out, how you perceive it, if you will. And so that's really primarily what chapter 10 is about. Now, I want to get into chapter 11 for a few moments, and then I'll stop for a moment for comments or questions. So then as we move into Revelation chapter 11, if you turn back there, 
One of the first things you notice is that God is very interested in what is going on in the temple of God. Well, that presupposes that the temple has been rebuilt. Okay? So there's a clue right there that the temple of God will be rebuilt, I believe, in Jerusalem. And it's only a matter of time before that begins to happen at some point in you know history. But I think it's going to happen sooner rather than later. And the thing that I just want to point out here is John is told to measure this all. It just simply is reminding us that God takes note of those who worship him and how they worship him and all of that. He's not this disinterested figure as God. He's very interested in those who worship. And remember, he says, Jesus, when he was here on earth, that they who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. And so God is using John here to sort of measure the temple of God and what's going on there. But then you'll notice this. Beginning in verse 3, God, even in the time of tribulation, always has his witness. Throughout history, God has always had his witness. No matter what nation has been in power at this point, no matter what People have tried to suppress the Bible, if you will, if it's been there, or the truth of God, or whatever, the revelation of God, and the teaching of Christ, and all of that. No matter how intense that has been throughout history, God has always had a group of people, a remnant of people, or just a small group of people who are willing to stand up for him and be witnesses of him throughout history. Sometimes throughout history, it's been bigger groups than others. But at all times, he has his witness, okay? I want that to be an encouragement to you. God never goes without his witness. He will always have those people on this earth who will be willing to stand up on earth and proclaim him to other people. And hopefully, how we can apply this to our lives is even though, obviously, we're not in the tribulation, nor do I think we will be in the tribulation, I believe God has called all of us to be witnesses right here and now. As he gives us opportunity, we are to be witnesses for him. And God never asks us to do something that he does not enable or equip us to do. So you'll notice in verse 3, during the tribulation, he says that I, God, will grant my two witnesses. Meaning, these are his personal witnesses and he's going to be behind these guys. In fact, notice he says, I'm going to grant my two witnesses authority. Authority to prophesy, which literally just means to foretell the truth for 1260 days as they're dressed in sackcloth. That's three and a half years. That is half of the tribulation period. Tribulation is seven years. These two witnesses will be given authority by God to basically share the truth of God for three and a half years. And just like the 144 Jewish evangelists that we talked about a couple weeks ago who were sent all over the world, here again, these two witnesses will be there in the midst of the tribulation. Again, God reaching out, even in the midst of the tribulation, to try to bring people to him, even in the darkest time of history. Now the point I want to make is again... God's behind them. He's given them his authority and his power and his enablement so that everything that they do, God is totally behind them. And I want you to know tonight that God is totally behind you and I as we go to witness. Because again, if you keep your finger there in Revelation chapter 11, please go back with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew's Gospel chapter 28. And let's look for just a second at what is called in the Bible the Great Commission which was the last sort of marching orders that Jesus gave his followers before 
he ascended in back to heaven to be with the Father. In Matthew 28, after he had resurrected, he asked the disciples to gather for him one last time as he was going to give them his final instructions before he left the earth. And here was his instructions. Notice verse 18 of Matthew 28. Then Jesus came up and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So, in my authority, I want you to go. And that's a command. And that command is not just given to pastors, elders, and Sunday school teachers, or whatever, or people who've been saved for 30 years plus. That command to go... And to make disciples in the authority of Christ is given to every Christian. Every Christian. Because this passage is not just directed to certain Christians, it's directed to every Christian. And that's why we know that every Christian is to be a witness. Every Christian is to be involved in making disciples. What does it mean to make disciples? Well, it certainly means more than just getting people saved. And that's why, like in a church like Cornerstone, we offer things like the mind and small groups and small churches and Bible studies and all these things. Because if, if God just told the church, all I want you to do is just go out, get people saved, and then that's it, then we wouldn't need things like this. But, but God said, go and make disciples. And being a disciple of Christ is much more than just being saved. Salvation, as we have said over and over again, is just the beginning. That, that's just the beginning. The, the, the goal is for all of us to grow up in Christ and to look more like Christ, to act more like Christ, to talk more like Christ, to be more like Christ in the world in which God has placed us. That's the goal. And that's what really being a disciple is all about. Now, part of that then is baptizing them. As they become Christians baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then after they are identified with Christ and become part of a local church, part of that, again, this is what the mind is part of, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then notice, and remember, as you go, as you baptize, and as you teach, Jesus promised all of us, I will be with you, even to the end of the age. In other words, just like with these two witnesses back in Revelation who were called by God to be his witnesses in the midst of a dark, dark period in human history, God was with them. He said, I'm going to grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days, three and a half years. Well, Jesus basically has told us the very same thing, only at a different time in history. He says, I, all authority has been given to me, and now as you go and make disciples, and you allow God to use your life to impact other people spiritually, you're going, not in your own authority, you're going in the authority of Christ. And as God uses your life to rub up against other people's lives and touch them to the point where they come to know God in some way or mature in their walk with the Lord, God is using your life to carry out the Great Commission. And all of our lives are going to touch other people's lives at different parts of that. Maybe for some of us, it's bringing them to Christ and, 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 and getting them to a point where they finally figure God out and, and accept Christ. For others of us, it may be a different part of that whole equation, but it's all part of the same Great Commission. All of us are to be involved in making disciples. All right, 
That's the Great Commission. And so I, I just wanted to tie that in because, again, I don't want to study anything, even in the book of Revelation, where somehow we can't practically apply it to our lives today. And so I wanted to tie that back in with us right here and now. So then if you go back to Revelation, you'll notice another very important thing. In verse 4, the Bible says in chapter 11, verse 4, that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. couple things. Olive trees. Olive trees were symbolic in the Old Testament especially of the power of the Holy Spirit because oil in the Bible is a symbol for the Holy Spirit. And remember what Zechariah the prophet said in Zechariah 4.6? Not by might, human might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so it is through us, and it was through even here in these in Revelation, these two witnesses allowing their witness to be empowered by the Holy Spirit that it would be most effective. And the same thing is true today. If we could take something away from here, we would simply say we need to be olive trees too, in the sense that olive oil was used as the fuel for the lamps in biblical times. It was very precious. And so the Bible is just reminding us that comparing the olive oil to the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives, that his ministry is like the fuel for our ministry, that we need to allow the Holy Spirit to empower us and enable us to do the things that God has called us to do. And then, of course, we've already seen the importance of the lampstand in the book of Revelation, that we are called to be light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And then in Matthew chapter 4, he tells his disciples and you and I, you are also the light of the world. Go, let your light shine before men so that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. So again, those two concepts. Now, notice this. Again, God, while they have their mission, is giving them the ability to protect themselves because people want to kill them. I mean, you, you, think, you think people are hostile to Christians and the church and God now? Wait till the church is gone and the tribulation is here. Notice if anyone wants to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and completely consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed this way. These two have the power to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the time they are prophesying. They have power to turn the waters to blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague whenever they want. When they have completed their testimony, and again, it just reminds us that as long as if God has that plan for their ministry, they're invincible. But there is going to come a time under the sovereignty of God where their ministry is going to be done. And then, and only then, will God allow Satan and his demonic forces and the evil forces of earth to touch them. So notice, when they have completed their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss that we're going to talk about in a little bit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Their corpses will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was also crucified. That's Jerusalem. Okay? Now, here's another very interesting verse. Notice, verse 9. For three and a half days, those from every people, tribe, nation, and language will look at their corpses, because they hated these two guys so badly that after three and a half years, when God finally allowed them to be killed, they just... They didn't even want to bury them. They just hated them that bad. So their corpses are going to lie in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days while everybody around the world looks at them. Now, again, going back a couple centuries, especially, 
most people would look at this verse in the book of Revelation and go, there's no way that can happen. People from all over the world aren't going to be able to look at one single spot on the earth and be able to see what's going on. And now you come to our day and age and you go, oh my goodness, anything that takes place all over the world can be seen by people all over the world at a single moment. There's no doubt that could happen. I mean, it'll be plastered on CNN and Fox and all those news stations. You'll see these corpses of these two prophets on there for three and a half days. And then notice this, what I call a satanic Christmas. Because then verse 10 says this, And those who live on the earth are so glad that these two guys are out of their hair that they will rejoice over them and celebrate even sending gifts to each other. Because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Tormented them primarily because they were telling them the truth. They didn't want to hear the truth, but they weren't able to get to them until God allowed the beast to get to them at the end of three and a half years. But then notice this. After three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and tremendous fear seized those who were watching them. And that's a very strong word because it basically means that the people of the earth thought that they had gotten rid of these guys. They were celebrating over their death and they were having this Christmas where they were sending each other Christmas gifts or you know gifts to celebrate their death and stuff. And, and this was celebration was going on. And then all of a sudden God resurrects them. And it's almost like, oh my goodness, you know, because God's going to have the last word. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven, meaning the people of the earth, saying to them, come up here. So the two prophets went up to heaven in a cloud while they, their enemies stared at them. And then a major earthquake took place, and many, many people died. And then the first woe has left, and the second woe is coming. Now, before we get into chapter 12, I want to make a couple comments about these two witnesses. I don't think it's wise to spend a lot of time, as many people do, trying to figure out who these two witnesses are. The Bible doesn't say who they are. Now, a lot of people say, well, because of their powers, they remind us of Elijah and Moses, because Elijah had these powers to not allow it to rain. Uh, Moses had the power uh, to be able to turn water to blood and all of that. It reminds them of that. And it could, you know, God could bring back Elijah and Moses. I'm not saying he couldn't. I'm just saying, again, if God really thought that was important, he would say, these two witnesses are going to be Elijah and Moses. There's some Christians who believe it's going to be Elijah and Enoch because Elijah and Enoch were the only two in the Old Testament, at least that we know of, that never died. Enoch was taken up to heaven, a type of the rapture in the book of Genesis, and Elijah was taken up in the fiery chariot. So maybe God will send back Enoch and Elijah and they'll be killed and, you know, I don't know. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I think the important thing here is to focus on the fact that God had his witness he was reaching out to people, even though they didn't want it. He was trying to bring more people to him. And there will be people who will come to him through the witness of these two witnesses. But the important thing I wanted you to see is that God was behind his witnesses. And God will always have his witnesses. And his witnesses are invincible until God's hand of protection is taken off of them because their purpose, as God sees it, is done for that period of time. And the same thing is true for you and I. We are God's witnesses. He is behind us 100%. He will enable us and equip us to do everything that we need to do. We never have to feel alone. We don't have to feel like God has abandoned us. And he's going to be there with us throughout the entire time as we witness for him 
here on this earth. And as we lift up the name of Jesus and try to turn people's hearts to Christ. It's bittersweet, as we learned about in chapter 10, but that's the main thing that I wanted to bring out of uh, Revelation chapter 10 and chapter 11. Before I open it up, I did want to say this. You'll notice in verse 15 that after all of this, the seventh angel blows his trumpet, loud voices are in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Which is basically just a reminder as we go back to the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He says, here's how I want you to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there's going to come a period of history that we're learning about right here in Revelation where that will come true. Where the kingdom of Christ will overthrow the kingdom of Satan, if you will, that has been temporarily set up on this earth and the kingdoms of men. And they will be overthrown and Christ will rule and reign forever. Not just for a thousand years, but forever, as we learn about here the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then really the rest of chapter 11 is just about the praise that God is given in heaven as he is worshipped for overthrowing the nations and the people who not only had rejected him, but who were, I mean, antagonistic. It wasn't just a neutrality or whatever. They hate him. They don't want anything to do with him. In fact, it's, so bad that we have seen already in the book of Revelation that when God does permit his two witnesses to be killed, the people of the world rejoice and actually have a celebration that these two guys are <coughs> finally off the scene. So it just shows us the kind of climate that's going to exist uh, during the tribulation period. Yes? Does it, does it mention anywhere else that there are elders in heaven? Other than, I mean, is it mentioned any time before in the Bible that there are elders like this in heaven? Twelve, twenty-four elders. No, and again, I, I, I don't really have a definitive answer of who the twenty-four elders are. Uh, there are people that speculate that, well, they represent the redeemed of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that twelve of them represent the twelve tribes of Israel, which represents all the Old Testament saints and the 12 of them represent the 12 apostles and the, the New Testament. Again, I, I don't know. I, I just know that these elders are seen in heaven, and they're always worshiping Christ. And they are always stirring others to worship Christ, and so are the angels. It sort of goes back and forth between the angels and the elders and the redeemed and everybody. And all you see is all these people in heaven just always worshiping, always worshiping, constant, constant worship. And uh, I think that's why I said that one of the hopefully byproducts of us studying the book of Revelation, unlike what it is for most people, instead of just being fascinated by the end time events and what's going to happen during the tribulation, is that what we're seeing in the book of Revelation is that heaven is a place of constant and continual worship of Jesus Christ, and their worship in heaven should stir our worship down here on earth. And we should just realize that we need to be a people that praises Christ more and worships him more and is more thankful and appreciative for all that we have in Christ. And, and hopefully that will be one of the byproducts that we have as we go through this study. Yes, anything else? All right. Then when you come to chapter 12, here's what you come to. You come to a point in the book where you finally have what I call 
the cast of characters, if you will, of the tribulation. All right. Uh, we we've already seen. I mean, that doesn't have a doesn't have much on. Let me see if this does. Um, yeah, that's a good one. We already saw in Revelation chapter four that one big focal point of Revelation was obviously the throne of God. And we've been there for quite a while, just seeing the stuff coming from the throne and to the throne, you know, worship going towards the throne, uh, judgments and lightnings and thunders coming from the throne, and that the throne of God is a real central thing there. And we've got to keep that in mind throughout, again, the book, that God is on his throne, never leaves his throne, he's under complete control. But then as you move through the book of Revelation... God begins to bring other players into the picture that he wants to, us to be introduced to. And so beginning in chapter 12, we are introduced to some players. And you say, how do you figure out who these players are? Well, sometimes you've got to read and you've got to find something that you know and then work backwards. Okay? I hope that makes sense. And I think I'll show you that here in a minute. You'll notice beginning in chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. Okay, who is this woman? How are we to identify this woman? Well, there's a couple clues, all right? First of all, we need to read on, but before we do, I want to just say this. The imagery in verse 1 of chapter 12 is very close to the imagery in Genesis chapter 37 for the nation of Israel. If you read Genesis 37, the dream that Joseph had of the nation of Israel is very close to what this imagery is in Revelation chapter 12. Okay? So you can start to get that picture together. Then, if you'll notice in verse 5, just skipping here, I'm going to go back, this woman, whoever it was, gave birth to a son a male child who is going to rule over all the nations with an iron rod. Well, we know who that is. The woman's child, because we know that description from other parts of the Bible, is none other than Christ. Okay? So we can identify Christ then and helpfully, hopefully work our way back with a couple other clues to then know who the woman is. The woman, I believe, is clearly the nation of Israel, because of the clue in verse 1 that describes Israel as a woman clothed with the sun, the moon, and twelve a crown of 12 stars. It's exactly what Joseph saw in Genesis 37 describing the nation of Israel. And then knowing that verse 5 says that this child that's going to rule and reign with an iron rod, or whatever, a rod, is, is Christ. We know that from other parts. So you can go back, and that's part of, you say... How do you learn what all these things are about? Well, you just start to piece it together. And what you might have to do is what I had to do. I first had to go down and read, really, to verse 5, and realize, okay, I know who the woman's child is. That's Christ. And then work your way back sometimes, because you're not maybe going to know initially who the woman is. You know, the only other possibility for this woman would be Mary herself. But Mary is never described in the Bible as a woman that's clothed with the sun, the moon, and a crown of 12 stars, but the nation of Israel. And we know that Jesus was a Jew who came out of the nation of Israel. And remember something. During the tribulation, 
Israel, as we know through prophecy in the Old Testament, is a major player in the tribulation. Just like the 144,000 Jews, and that God is going to turn his attention back to the nation of Israel. Mary has nothing to do with the tribulation. Mary's already in heaven. She, she has nothing to do with the tribulation. So again, I think by the process of elimination, you and I are pretty safe in saying the woman is Israel and that the woman's child is Christ. Now, go back to verse 3. Or excuse me, verse 2. She was pregnant and was screaming in labor pain, struggling to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. A huge red dragon that had seven heads and ten horns, and on its head were seven diadem crowns. Who in the world is this? Then we read, verse 4, The dragon's tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. Well, who wanted to get to the woman's child? Who wanted to kill the woman's child? Okay, well, you could say Herod, okay? But who was behind Herod? And then, again, if you just keep reading, the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. Who's the huge red dragon? We'll go over to verse 9. So that huge dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world was thrown down to the earth and his angels along with him. So, now the next player is this dragon. And if you just keep reading, you find out that the dragon is Satan. And again, it fits in with Bible prophecy. Who are the major players in Bible prophecy? The nation of Israel, Jesus, Satan. All right? And that's really, if you study chapter 12, that is really what chapter 12 is all about. It's about more than that, but it is primarily introducing us to three major players during the tribulation period. The nation of Israel, so that now, here's what you can do. Now, from here on out, any time that you see the woman being referred to, then you know, okay, that's talking about the nation of Israel. And any time you see the woman's child being referred to, you can, okay, that's <coughs> talking about Christ. And any time you see the dragon, you know that that's, because there's, I want to be careful, I don't, I don't want to give an exact count, but there's at least 30 different titles for Satan in the Bible. And we saw some of them here. He's called the dragon, he's called the serpent, he's called the devil, he's called Satan, he's called the deceiver. So again, there he is. And he is a major, major player during the tribulation period. And so I wanted to share that with you because hopefully... For those of you who approach the book of Revelation and say, I can't understand it. It's using a lot of symbolism. I don't understand what the symbols mean. That hopefully, by just walking through it as we did tonight, hopefully that will help you to see that sometimes it's not as hard to figure these things out as we think it is. Because if you just keep reading sometimes, you find out that things like dragon is going to come up again. And then in the later verse, like they did here in verse 9, they're going to tell you who the dragon actually is. All right? Do you now. Think the people in those days had the sophistication to know, to be able to understand these revelations? I mean. I do. Yeah. Because again, I think that the Bible teaches that God's revelation is able to be understood because of the Spirit's illumination. And that the Spirit of God throughout history has been at work illuminating all of our minds to the truth of God. Now, 
that doesn't mean that some in that day understood as much as we do today because they were looking, you know, from their perspective in history. But I do think they understood some of it. Especially, I think they definitely understood, if they would have come to this, that, okay, the woman is Israel, the woman's child is going to be, you know, is Christ, and, and obviously the dragon is Satan. But obviously, too, there were some things that, back in that day and age, that they would not have seen as clearly. Just like, when they would have been revealed to them that the whole world could see these two witnesses, they didn't have television yet to figure out, I think they believed that it was going to happen, they just didn't know how it was going to happen because technology hadn't got... So now for us, when we see something like that in the Bible, it's like, oh, okay, that's no big deal. We, we know that could happen. So yeah, there are some things that they were limited to know exactly how God was going to bring it about, but I think by the Spirit's illumination, they knew most of what it was. Again, because like for all of us, the Spirit of God has to help us to understand the Bible or else we're cooked. We can't understand it without His enablement. And He wants to help us to understand it. Yeah, And there's reasons why, for instance, God is going to use the metaphor of the woman for Israel and the woman's child for Christ and why, why Satan is called a dragon. There, there's a reason why God wants to, us to know that Satan is a dragon. The word dragon in the original language speaks about a fierce beast. And he's basically saying, I just want you to know that you know Satan's a fierce beast. And you need to be aware of him, you know, not just in the tribulation, but obviously as we've talked about, he's alive and well on planet Earth, as Hal Lindsey said a long time ago, even right now. In fact, one thing I, I would like to stop on here for a moment and look at is notice this, and this is how we can apply this to our lives today. Notice in verse 10, after Satan is identified, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the ruling authority of his Christ have now come. Because the accuser of our brothers and sisters, the one who accuses them day and night before our God, has been thrown down. And again, if you compare chapter 12, you understand he's talking here about Satan. And in other, other places in the Bible, Satan is called the accuser. Okay? That's one of his titles. And that's what we're learning here. Now, how we apply that to our lives is this. We have to understand that that's one, of the, that's one of the primary things that Satan does to us today. Is he accuses us before God constantly. What I mean by that is, you know, he'll say things like, God doesn't love you. And look at how you messed up last week. Man, God could never forgive you for that. And God could never use you again. You might as well just give up, you know. And, and he'll, he'll throw old sins that God has forgiven and cast into the depth of the sea up to our face again. He is the accuser of the brethren. One of his primary strategies in throwing up our sins in our face and our past failures and all of that is to get us focused upon those and to focus upon our failures and to focus upon the things that we've done wrong in order to not continue to pursue the path of righteousness. Because if we're so focused on the things of the past, then we're not going to be able to throw our energy into really pressing toward the mark. And that's why Paul said in Philippians, I've got to learn to forget those things that are past. And if anybody had a past, it was Paul. 
He persecuted the church of God. He threw Christians into prison. He had Christians killed. He, he was there when Stephen was stoned. So if anybody had a past, it was Paul. And Paul said, I had to get to the point where I did not allow the accuser to throw up all the bad things I did in my past, in my faith, and allow that to affect me. I had to fight my accuser with the truth of God and remind my accuser that that sin has been forgiven, that God has thrown it into the depth of the sea, that God doesn't want me to focus on that anymore, and that God wants me to pursue righteousness. So get thee behind me, Satan. I'm not going to listen to you. Okay? And that's why the Bible teaches us, even today, not just during the tribulation period, we've got to transform our minds by the, by the truth of God's word every day. We've got to discipline our minds to think on God's truth and, and to think about the truth of God rather than the lies of Satan, because Satan is going to throw those lies out there all the time and try to get us distracted and get us chasing after these lies rather than what we really need to be focused on because he is the accuser. Now let me show you before I stop for a moment a passage in the Old Testament that brings out this scene very clearly. If you go to the book of Zechariah, Zechariah is what's called one of the minor prophets. If you go to the first, or I should say the last book of the Old Testament, okay, so if you find Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament, and you start going left, You'll go through Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, and then you'll come to the next to last book of the Old Testament, which is Zechariah. And if you go to Zechariah chapter 3, God gave us this tremendous scene that took place in heaven at a time in history where his high priest, a guy by the name of Joshua, and he was not the same Joshua that wrote the book of Joshua and it was Moses' understudy. This was Joshua the high priest, was standing before God. And notice what Zechariah chapter 3 says. Now I saw Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan, standing at his right hand, notice what to do, to accuse him. Joshua, you're a jerk. Joshua, God can't use you. Joshua, you're such a bad person. And the Lord said to Satan, May the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man like a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the accuser was reminding God, and I think reminding Joshua, just how filthy he was. But you'll notice, the Lord was standing up for Joshua. Because Joshua had been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so any accusation that Satan was giving was falling on deaf ears because Jesus wasn't going to condemn Joshua. And so he just says, Satan, just get away. And the angel then spoke up, verse 4, to all those standing around, says, remove his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, I have freely forgiven your iniquity and I will dress you in fine clothing. What a great story. But it shows us this principle that we read about even in the book of Revelation that one of the primary ministries, if you will, of Satan throughout history has been to accuse us before God. You're filthy. You're no good. God can't use you. God doesn't love you anymore. God has given you so many chances, he's not going to give you any more. I mean, on and on and on. Trying to discourage us, trying to distract us, trying to, to humiliate us and get us to the point where we just, you know, because... That's what our enemy wants to do. If he can't have our soul, and it's too late for him to, 
to, to keep us out of heaven, then the next best thing is to try to discourage us to the point where we just don't feel like God can use us at all to be a witness for him while we're here on earth. Now, one more passage, and then I'll let open it up again. For Go to the book of Romans, if you will, in the, in the New Testament to see these two great verses that deal with this. Romans... Chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. You want two good verses that deal with this and two good verses that we should maybe commit to memory or write down and and just remind ourselves of as our enemy accuses us? And he's going to keep accusing us. He never stops. It is Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34. Notice what Paul says. Who will bring any charge against God's elect. Is it God who justifies? Who is the one who will condemn us? Christ is the one who died. And more than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God and who also is interceding for us. In other words, in those two verses, basically God is saying, I'm not going to condemn you. If anybody's going to condemn you, it's going to be the dragon. It's going to be Satan. It's going to be the accuser. I'm not going to condemn you. Why would I condemn you? I died for you. You accepted me. You have my righteousness. You're forgiven. I'm not going to throw up those sins anymore in your face. If anybody's going to throw those sins up in your face, it may be another human being, or it may be Satan, but it's not God. In fact, the Bible teaches us right here in Romans chapter 8, 34, that basically... That word intercede is also a word that can be used for a defense attorney. And what it's reminding us of is basically Jesus is our advocate or our defense attorney before God when Satan accuses us. And just as he did in Zechariah chapter 3, when Satan begins to accuse us, the Lord stands right up and says, oh, no, 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 no. Get out of here, Satan. Your accusations mean nothing here. They're redeemed. They're forgiven. Get out of here. It, It doesn't work here. I've forgiven them. I died for them. They accepted me. It's no good here. So here's the sad thing, though. It's no good in heaven. And as far as Christ is concerned, it it has no validity to him. But how sad it is that we as Christians sometimes buy into the lies of Satan and to the discouragement of Satan and to the accusations of Satan where we begin to believe that rather than the truth of God. Where we begin to believe... God, did did you really forgive me of that? Yeah. And you know how we know that? Because we accept it by faith. If God says, I will forgive you, then just like with our salvation, we have to accept that he has forgiven us. He will never throw that up in our face anymore. He has cast our sin, as the Bible says, into the depth of the sea. He has separated our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And he's not going to condemn us anymore. Period. So that if you feel condemned, it's because you and I are buying into the accuser, not to our Savior. And that's something that we certainly can deal with right here and now, but yet we see it still taking place during the tribulation period where Satan is still accusing those before God. Yes. So despite what you're saying about us listening to Satan, wouldn't that have some bearing on our eternal rewards in heaven? It sure will. 
yeah, if, if, again, if, if Satan can't keep me out of heaven, he's going to try to distract me to the point where, or discourage me to the point where I, I just, I give up, or I throw in the towel spiritually, or, or God's up there wanting to, to, to use me, and, and I'm just not making myself available because I bought in to... And what God would say, I think, to a person like that is, you, you've got to, by faith, believe the truth and replace the lies that you are believing from Satan rather than the truth of my word. And that's why he would say to get into the word, replace those lies, because he's called the father of lies in the Bible. With tr- And that's why it's so important to be in the Bible and to be in the word. So that when, when the accuser does throw those lies our way and lobs those over the fence, if you will, that we've got the truth of God to counteract. That's exactly what Jesus did. When he was tempted, what did he use? He used scripture to combat the temptation of Satan. And we've got to do the same thing. The best way to fight Satan is with scripture. It's the best way to do it. That's the way Jesus did it. I don't think we can improve on that. So I think we just we just combat it. Well, again, if Satan comes to me and starts throwing something up in my face that I did that God had forgiven me for, I just repeat back to Satan, God's forgiven me for that. Get behind me, Satan. I'm moving on. And just go on believing that he can't he can't fight the truth. And we, we've got to use the truth as our sword uh, in the spiritual battle. That is the one offensive weapon that God gave us. All the other weapons in Ephesians chapter 6, all the other spiritual armor is defensive to withstand the enemy's attack. The one offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. I hope this is helpful to you. Not that any of you struggle with these accusations. I'm the only one that does. I understand that, but I just thought I would bring that up tonight. You know. Does the devil have free reign? To go to and from heaven? Yeah, very interestingly, uh, he does up to this point in history. If you go back then to, that's a very good question, if you go back to verse 7 of Revelation chapter 12, because you saw in Zechariah chapter 3, he had access to heaven. If you read the book of Job, you realize he has access to heaven. Why God allows that? I don't know. You know, it's just one of those things. But notice, finally, there's going to come a point where he's finally kicked out and he has no access to heaven. Then war broke out in heaven. Verse 7 of chapter 12. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But the dragon was not strong enough to prevail, so there was no longer any place left in heaven for him and his angels. So the huge dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, was thrown down to the earth and his angels along with him. Now, notice verse 13. Now, when the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Because part of what's going on in the tribulation is Satan is going to try to wipe out the nation of Israel, just like he's really trying to do today. He still hates Israel because he knows that Israel is God's chosen people. And so what Satan tries to do is to do anything that's going to get at God. So he attacks the church, he attacks Israel, whatever he can do, all right? The woman then, notice, was given two wings of a giant eagle so that she could fly out into the wilderness to take to the place God prepared for her where she is taken care of away from the presence of the serpent. Now there's another word for, for Satan. For a time, times, and half a time. Then the serpent, and I'm just not going to go all through this, but basically the bottom line is this. Um, he knew his time was short. 
And he, throughout then, as he is thrown down to earth, and he no longer has access to heaven, he realizes that his time is short here on the earth, and uh, he's going to do everything he can to totally destroy the nation of Israel. In fact, you read that, if you'll notice in verse 12, if you go back up to Revelation 12, 12. Notice it says, Therefore you heavens rejoice in all who reside in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you. He is filled with terrible anger, for he knows that he only has a little time. You see, some people say, does the devil know it's going to be over for him one day? Yeah, he does. He knows. But you see, sin is so deceptive, and sin so messes you up, that in spite of the fact that the devil knows that he's going to lose, and he knows, like at this point in the tribulation, he has very little time left because he knows he's going to end up in the bottomless pit for a thousand years during the millennial reign of Christ. See, he, he knows the Bible. He, he knows what's going to happen. Again, it goes back to what demons know, you know. It's just that they don't accept. They, they don't want to receive it. And basically, to a point, that's sort of the way a lot of humanity is going to be. It's not that they don't know, as we're reading about Revelation. They know. They know where the judgments are coming from. They know why it's all happening. They just don't want to embrace God. They just don't want God to rule and reign over their lives. And so, again, there's that huge contrast between those of us who embrace Christ's rule in our life and those who say, I don't want anybody ruling and reigning over my life, even God. Forget it. You know, I'm my own king. You know, I, I'm the king of my own castle. And I don't even want God telling me what to do type of thing. You know, that's the way they look at it. And that's the way most of the nations of the world will look at it. And so God is going to overthrow all of that rebellion one day, and it's going to happen in the time of the tribulation. So again, the main thing, though, I want you to remember about Romans, uh, Revelation 12, it introduces us to the three, three of the major characters in the, uh, in the end times and in prophecy and in the book of Revelation. Whew. Any comments or questions before we go on to chapter 13? Yes. I think you could probably make that a safe assumption. Yeah, that, that even though there are people who are going to try to hurt us through the words that they say to us, that ultimately Satan is probably behind it. Yeah, I would I say mean, that. If, if another person accuses us of something from the past, that very well may be true. Is, oh, okay. Is, is the remedy in how it's handled the same? I think so. Yep, I, I believe with all my heart. We just we just tell them the truth of God's word and say, look, you know, you may still be bringing that up, but it's under the blood. It's it's done with. It's it's gone. You know, uh, I think that's what we need to do. Yeah, good good. Good question, yeah. And, and let's face it, people will bring up things of our past, and, and they will. You know, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs that the death and life are in the power of the tongue. And our tongues and our mouths and our lips can be used for the greatest good to encourage and build up and strengthen other people, or as we all know and probably have been victim to at times in our life, other people's words and mouths and lips and things can be used to totally destroy people and tear them down. And uh, 
it, it's a wicked thing. And that's why the Bible says for us to be very careful about what comes out of our mouth. Because if we've ever been on the other end of that power, negatively, we know how much it hurts to have those words just cut and cut very deeply. And we don't want to do that in other people's lives because we know what Satan tries to do and what other people have done to us. Carlos, yeah. I, um, I had a question that, that you know, when, when he was cast down from, from heaven, Satan was allowed free reign on earth, and, and that's how he's, he's uh, going after people. But in, in, verse, in, in chapter 9, it talks about um, him being released from the bottom of his pit. I think my my take on that is that the star that had fallen from the sky in verse 1 is actually Satan. If you go back and read like Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and you compare those passages with other passages like this one, I think that the star that had fallen from the sky was Lucifer, the son of the morning, the bright and morning star that had fallen and that he actually was given, again, by God's permission, this key to the shaft of the abyss, and that he personally opened up the shaft that housed all these demons that had been chained there for a couple thousand years that were let loose on the earth to torment people on the earth. Yeah. I don't think he was in the bottomless pit, but he was given the key to unlock the bottomless pit. Yeah. So that makes sense that he's, he's had... Uh... Exactly, and that's why the Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world. Again, it's all under the sovereignty of God because God is always on his throne, but Satan is allowed certain parameters uh, that he can go, just like if you read the book of Job where Satan says, well, the only reason he's serving you, God, is because you never allow anything bad to happen. And so God says, okay, I'll let you touch him physically. You just can't kill him. And if you read, read the book of Job, you see where God has put parameters on Satan. He's only allowed to do what God allows him to do and no further. And again, if you read the book of Job, you find out why God allowed all that. Because the end of Job was actually better than the beginning of Job. And through the book of Job, we learn that God really, it's not Father knows best. God knows best. You know, I'm dating myself there. That could be bad. But, uh, and that's really why, you know, people say, well, is that why God allows Satan? Yeah, because even allowing Satan to do the things that God allows him to do ultimately brings honor and glory to God. That's how great God is. He can even allow Satan some, some freedom, in a sense, within his universe and ultimately, it still brings God glory. Because Satan is proven wrong every time. And, and, and that's part of it. It's just, it's just a reminder that God is always right and Satan is always wrong. And Satan will always be proven wrong and will always be on the wrong end of it every time. Just like he was in the book of Job. Because he wasn't right. Job didn't serve God. Just because everything went right. And that was proven throughout the study of the book of Job. Yes? So 
hide. Um, and then it says that, you know, if you follow it up on the 15th, verse 16, talks about um, down a river and the earth opens. And- Very good question. I think, here, here's what I see. Again, you have to go back and compare Scripture with Scripture. And like in the Gospels, when Jesus talks about the end times, he tells his people, and he's talking there, especially in Matthew, to the Jews. He's not talking to Gentiles. And he says, when you see all these signs, don't wait around. Flee. Flee into the mountains. Flee here. And he's, he's reminding his people, Israel, when you see these signs during the tribulation, it's not time to hang around the city of Jerusalem, the city of Tel Aviv. It's time to get into the wilderness to this place that has been pre-prepared for you for protection from Satan as he seeks you. And I think literally that Satan is going to in some way try to swallow up the nation of Israel, maybe with some kind of natural you know, phenomenon or disaster as God permits it, or maybe again through some military action, but that God has a place for them. And let me just even go a step further. I personally believe, and I'm not asking you to buy into this either, that if any of you have ever heard of the place called Petra, and I'm not talking about the Christian band, I'm talking about this place in the Middle East that is basically a city that is built in to solid rock. It is a place that if you if you read if you uh, watch the movie Indiana Jones, okay, the very third the third one the third movie, Petra was in that movie, okay, and and God I think has places for His people in these mountainous regions where they can hide, where they will not be found and where they will be protected. And let me just give you an example from our day and age, with all of our technology and all of our military and all of that. We can't seem to find Osama bin Laden because he's hiding there in those mountains in Afghanistan. And people will say, how can the Taliban, who are so primitive, how can they be up there in those mountains of Afghanistan and we can't find them? Because if you've ever been in those mountains of Afghanistan, there's so many cracks and craters and crevices and stuff and so many desolate places that people could hide there for years and never be found even by our drones and our modern technology. The same thing is true with this region, Petra. You could hide there and around that area, people never find you there. It's just so remote and so in there. And it's just, and, and God, I believe, has prepared this place for his people to go and hide until this time where, you know, Satan is intensely trying to chase them and destroy them, where he can protect them and bring them back then. Is that a region or a city? It is both. Uh, it, 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 it certainly is. If you talk to some uh, archaeologists and, and whatnot, that it, it is a city, but I also believe it is a region there as well, uh, a very mountainous, rocky Petra, Petras region uh, in Palestine where, again, people could hide and never be, never be found. But yeah, it's a good question. Good question. If you ever want to Google it or something, Petra, the beautiful pictures and stuff of the place, you know. Um, but again, you'd say, well, how to take time to find thousands of people in these mountainous regions would just take forever. It would just take forever. It's not like, you know, you're just going to go and find them all and, you know, that that's the end of it. It's not that easy. We, we've seen that with trying to track down Osama. It's just not that easy once they get in those mountains over there to track down those those folks. Yes. Um, 
are they referring to in verse 17 when they say war with the rest of her offspring? Yeah, again, I believe that's just Israel. The rest of her offspring would be, to me, just referring to those who are Israel. Yeah, the continuing generation is a good way to look at it. Yeah, because again, the church is gone at this point. So Satan's primary target is going to be Israel. If you jump ahead, and again, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but we're going to get to it in a few weeks. When you jump ahead to the Battle of Armageddon, and and all that takes place in the Valley of Eshraladon, as it's called, or the Valley of Decision, if you read in the in the prophet Joel, or however you want to look at that, okay, that uh, the Valley of Jezreel, as it's also called, that the nations of the world are basically congregating there to not, at that point, destroy God. They're there to wipe Israel off the map. Because really, what Satan has done at that point during the tribulation, as he's gotten all the nations of the world to gather together to fight, to basically blow Israel off the map once and for all. And then, before that happens, that's what's called the second coming of Christ, where Christ and all the armies of heaven, which you and I will be a part of, riding that white horse, we will, we will come back, and, and Christ will... It's over. I mean, it, I don't even know why it's called the Battle of Armageddon, because there's no battle. I mean, it's, it's like Christ comes back, and it's the end. You know, to me, a battle is like a battle. Yeah, there's some fighting. It's like once Christ comes back and rides that white horse at the second coming, his glory just destroys it all, and boom, it's over. I mean, there's no there's no struggle. There. And you know what's interesting about that? And just again, why God does certain things that I have no clue about. Going back to what we read in chapter 12 about this angelic war. I've always thought, how do angels fight with each other? Yeah, you know, it's like they can't they can't really kill each other. Uh, how do they, you know, how do they fight with each other? But the Bible says there's a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and his angels and all these demons. And it's like, I'd like to be there for that. That'd be sort of cool, you know? Because Michael and his, his angels do win. But I think the thing that, I, you know, I don't want to say I struggle with, but again, you just, you just wonder about it. At any time, God could just step in and go, it's over. But he does, I mean, he even allows his angels to sort of struggle, if you will, in this war with the demonic realm whenever God could just say, oh, that's it. You know, there, there's no war. It's, it's all over. But he, he even allows that. And you go, well, why does he allow it? I don't know. You know, again, that's way beyond my understanding. But we, we just accepted it. it it's, what, it's what happened. And we know that the Bible teaches that in this realm that we can't see, that there is a struggle, not just between the demonic forces of Satan and us, but there is a struggle between God's angels and between demons all the time. If you read the book of Daniel, you, you understand that there was a conflict between a good angel and a bad angel. And they were wrestling, because the good angel was trying to get a message back to Daniel, and Daniel found out later on that the angel said, I was trying to get back with you, but I got in a fight with this bad angel, and it took me a while to overcome him, but finally I overcame him, and so here I am. And it's like, oh, wow, you know, that's pretty cool. And so there, there's, you know, stuff going on all the time out there that, that's just sort of in that dimension that we can't see, but by faith we accept it, it it's there, and, and it happens. But yeah, good stuff.
Good and stuff. when she said about Israel moving, isn't that because they also talked about a new Jerusalem and, that, and when the, the millennium comes that we won't be looking at the actual location of old Israel right. because there'll be a new Jerusalem. Right, certainly the new Jerusalem will be the focal point of, of yeah, of everything at that point. That'll be our what I've said are sort of our heavenly condominiums up there, you know. <laughs> heaven. We'll all have that place that Jesus has prepared for us, as he says in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. That's that's that. So, yeah. Well, I thought I would get through chapter 13, but I didn't. But let me let me say this. We're going to we're going to preview next week and I hope you come back next week. <coughs> Please come back. We're also inter- introduced to two other main players in chapter 13 that you can read about. The beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth. And really, again, if you just want a quick sort of summary, that's what chapter 13 is about. So now, instead of three major players, you now have five. You have these three that we were introduced to in chapter 12, and you have two more that we are introduced to in chapter 13. Now again, come back next week, because I think you will see very clearly that the beast out of the sea is who we call also, and again, he has many names, we call him the Antichrist, and the beast out of the earth is who we also refer to as the false prophet. Okay? And then what you have from that is again what Satan always tries to do, which remember, everything that God does, Satan has a counterfeit for. And the same thing is true here. There is an unholy trinity, okay? You have Satan, who corresponds to God the Father, as far as the holy trinity. You have the Antichrist, who corresponds to Christ. And you have the false prophet, who corresponds to the Holy Spirit. Because as we study chapter 13, you realize that the false prophet's ministry really is just like the Holy Spirit's ministry to Christ, so the false prophet's ministry is to the Antichrist. And there you have what the we just come to know as the unholy trinity because they all just, again, fall as a counterfeit to the real thing. Yes? I know you're going to discuss it next week, but do you, do you have any thoughts or speculation on whether these are individuals or corporations or other churches or religions that are going to... That are, that are playing these roles? Very good question. And I believe the answer is a very clearly and definitive they are individuals. And, and we'll see that next week, but I'll just give you this. Personal pronouns are used. So if they were institutions or whatever, they would not use personal pronouns. And if you go through the book of Revelation, you find out that the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan are all thrown into the lake of fire. Well... How can an institution be thrown into the lake of fire? How, how can something like that? No, I think it's very clear that these are real people that correspond to the real people of the Holy Trinity and that they're not as some say, you know, but I, that, that is certainly a common, you know, belief by some. But I think if you study it, you can come to a pretty definitive answer that it, it, is, it is real people, a individual. Now, I will say this. Don't think you're going to come back next week and I'm going to tell you who the Antichrist is. Sorry.
I know, I know. I'm not gonna, and I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why we don't say who the Antichrist is. Okay? All right, let's close with prayer. Thanks, guys, you've been terrific. Father, thank you again for your word. And I, I just pray, Father, most of all, that, that as we gather around your word each week, that, Lord, it's an encouragement to these folks. And, Lord, it strengthens their faith and, and just gives them something really practical that they can carry with them throughout this week. And maybe, most of all, Lord, we were just reminded about our accuser. And if nothing else, Lord, just help us to fight off the attacks and the accusations of Satan with the truth of your word. And help us not to be duped and, and buy in to his lies uh, because, Lord, he just so wants to distract us in so many ways. Help us to keep our eyes focused squarely on Jesus. And these things we ask in his precious name. Amen. Thanks, guys. You've been terrific Thank as you. always.